the truth is, folks, if you don't come apart, you'll come apart. If you're burning the candle at both ends, you're not as bright as you think you are. He wants us to have a faith that really believes his promises that are outlined specifically in his word. Welcome to Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. It's been said that when you give God your weakness, he'll give you his strength. In fact, the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 12, for when I am weak, then I am strong. With this in mind, today David continues our provision series with a message simply called weakness. Today is the final message of the provision series, John chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. It is the feeding of the 5,000 men, which means probably the feeding of about 20,000 people. Uh, It is the only miracle story of Jesus that is shared in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four authors giving us different perspectives about it. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in that place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered up them and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. So in trying to explain this text, let me divide it into four parts, if you will, four acts to the play. Here's the first one. The setting in verses 1 and 2. It's absolute fatigue. Uh, After this, verse 1, after what? After having ministered to thousands upon thousands of people, teaching them, healing them, exercising demons. After this, when Jesus was really, really tired, he went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. So so Jesus is fatigued. He goes across the lake of Galilee in order to find a special spot on a mountain where he could just get some rest with his disciples. Uh, He sought a place of solitude. He knew he needed rest. We should too. In fact, it reminds me of the story of uh, the woman who had this dog come into her house every day at the same time. And it was a well-fed dog, well-cared for. She knew it had an owner, but the dog would simply sit down and sleep for a couple hours, then get up and leave the house. This happened for weeks after weeks, until finally she said, I'm going to put a letter on the collar, and she did. The letter simply said, to whom it may concern, your dog comes over to my house every day, sleeps for two hours, then leaves. What gives? 
The next day, sure enough, the dog came and there was a note attached to the collar and it says, to whom it may concern, we have 10 kids, my dog's exhausted and needs the sleep. (laughs) Dogs need rest. Humans need rest. Even Jesus, perfect God, perfect human, needed rest. The truth is, folks, if you don't come apart, you'll come apart. If you're burning the candle at both ends, you're not as bright as you think you are. God gave us one day a week to rest, to get away from work, and to simply allow our minds, bodies, souls, and spirits to be renewed. Jesus knew this. He got away. He went to a solitude place so he could rest. We all need it. But here's what happened. When he got to his place of rest, 5,000 men started moving toward him. Did you catch that? 5,000 men, which means there were probably women and children, which bloats the number to about 20,000 probably. That would be like a doctor who has spent months caring for his patients, person after person, giving himself, herself to them. And then finally, vacation time comes. He puts his family into the car. They drive to a particular restful place only to find there are about 200 of his patients waiting there for him. That's what happened to Jesus. And he looked out over the multitudes. And folks, interestingly, he chose compassion over fatigue. He chose compassion over fatigue. He chose to care for the multitudes, even though he was really tired. So the setting is total fatigue in verses 1 and 2. Let's look at the situation. It's dire in verses 3 and 7. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And the reason that's important is because the Passover happens in the springtime, so that means this event happened in the springtime. That'll be important later on when we see Jesus having the crowds sit down in the grass. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them even to get a little. So so it's the springtime. The 20,000 people come to Jesus. He chooses compassion over fatigue. So how does he choose to address the fact that after several hours probably of teaching and ministry, the people are getting hungry and they all need to eat? He turns to Philip, one of his disciples, and he asks the question, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, why did Jesus choose Philip? Philip was from a nearby town called Bethsaida. So so probably Jesus is asking Philip because he probably knew where the closest local grocery store was. He might have some ideas on how these numbers could be fed. But interestingly, Jesus then says, he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Jesus knew what he was going to do. He knew he was going to miraculously feed the 5,000 men. But he asked this question to Philip to test him. Test him. Hmm. Why do professors give tests to pupils? So that they will learn the information, right? Right? What information does Jesus want us to learn more than anything else in the world? I would suggest to you today, it's our faith. 
to believe that he will provide for us exceedingly and abundantly beyond anything we could imagine, according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Jesus wants us to believe, to have faith, no matter what may be facing us, especially death, that we believe there's life eternal through Jesus, the forgiveness of our sins, the resurrection of his body gives us resurrected bodies. Luke 18, 8, Jesus said, when I come back again, oh, by the way, did you know he's coming back again? He claimed it, and he would not lie to us. He will come back, and he will judge all sin and make this world the way God intended it to be. But he said in Luke 18, 8, when the Son of Man comes back again, will he find, does anybody know what he'll find on earth? Faith. Will he find faith on earth? Will he find faith on earth? So God regularly in the Old Testament with the Jewish people and the New Testament with his followers tests faith. Why? He wants us to get it. That we need to be like little children who trust him with his promises. He wants us to believe above all other things. Now, Philip, I think, was a little spiritually dense. I don't think Philip was the sharpest faith knife in the drawer. How do I know that? You look at John, the 14th chapter. Here's what's going on. Jesus is teaching his disciples in the upper room just hours before he's going to die. The disciples have been walking with him for over three years. And he says this, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places, and I'm preparing one for you. And I'm going there to do it so that where I am, there you may also be. And if it weren't so, I wouldn't tell you this. I can't lie to you. I've got a place in heaven reserved for you. So Jesus makes that promise. And then he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Not a life, a truth, a way, the way, the truth, the life. There's exclusivity in the claim. I didn't make it, folks. Jesus did. He's the only way to the Father. And then after he makes this statement in verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? <laughs> so Philip asked the question here after three and a half years of walking with him. Uh, how do we know that you and the Father are one? And Jesus just went, Philip, you've walked with me all these years. You've seen all the miracles. You've heard my teaching, and you still don't get that I and the Father are one? So I think here in John 6, Jesus knew Philip was spiritually thick. So he tested his faith to help him grow, just like he does with you and me. He wants us to have a faith that really believes his promises that are outlined specifically in his word. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7 is a fascinating verse. Look at this with me. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. When he comes back, he wants us to praise him in glory and honor. So therefore, he tests our faith and wants it to be precious like gold. Well, gold is put in the fire to burn off the dross. So any faithful follower of Jesus will have our faith put in the dross, in the fire, excuse me, to burn off the dross so that our faith is made pure like gold. Let me tell you a very difficult 
prayer to pray, but it's necessary for all of us to pray if we're serious about our relationship with Jesus. Lord, test my faith. Test my faith. Like you did Philip, like you did others, so that it can be proven to be like gold. Please, Lord. So that's what he's doing here. And Philip, though, was looking at the size of the problem, not the size of his God. And that's what Jesus wanted him to get at. You see, in verse 7, Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. This is fascinating. So what Philip does, he probably thinks about the treasury pouch that Judas carried. And he thought, you know what? I know how much is in there. It's about 200 denarii. One denarii was worth a day's labor. So that's about eight months worth of wages we've got there. But there are 20,000 people, 200 denarii, 200 denarii devised this much bread. There are all these people out there. And then that's when he concludes, uh, if we buy bread, no one will get enough. Do you see what he's doing? He's walking by sight, not by faith. He's trying to figure it out, calculate it like all of us do whenever we're facing a problem. i got to figure this out. And Jesus just wanted him to trust him, not to try to figure it out. So then let's move to the next act of the play, the supplies. They're limited as you look at the problem. Verses 8 and 9. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, But what are they for so many? Okay, so Andrew steps to the plate. Philip fails the test. Andrew steps up, and he brings a boy who is in the crowd. Now, let's uh, pause for a second and talk about this boy. Who is he? Well, the text doesn't tell us, but I can't help but wonder if he isn't one of those little children who came to Jesus and sat on his knee, whom Jesus said, all of us need to have a faith like this child. You can't help but wonder he had some dramatic encounter with Jesus so that when he left that morning and his mother packed him five barley loaves and two fish, barley is the food of the poor. It's highly nutritious, but it's awfully crumbly. And when you eat it, it tastes like paste, but it was all the poor could afford. So this boy's probably from a poor family. His mom fixed him five barley loaves and two pickled sardines. So she's giving him basically a couple of fish sandwiches for lunch. But he probably left going, but I know this man. I've got to have more encounters with him. He moved amidst the 20,000 to the front of the line. So when Andrew's trying to figure out how to feed this number and didn't think Philip's answer was very good, he goes among the people to check what resources they have in the cupboard. And he finds this boy with five barley loaves and two pickled fish. And he says to Jesus, here's all we got. And there's a part of us that goes, okay, good for Andrew. Step forward, a man of great faith. But then he says, but what are they for so many? A statement of doubt. A statement of unbelief. How can five loaves and two fish feed all of these numbers of people? Which leads to the last act of the play, the surplus, which becomes unlimited in verses 10 through 13. Look at these verses. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in that place because it was springtime. 
When is grass most luscious, most green, softest, most comfortable? When, folks? Springtime. So keep that in mind. So the men sat down, about 5,000. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the barley loaves left by those who had eaten." There's several steps Jesus took here so that the abundance of the loaves and fish were able to feed the 20,000 people. First of all, the people sat down on the grass. Again, it's spring. It's when the grass is softest, most comfortable. And I just think it's wonderful, don't you, that Jesus is very concerned with the comfort of our bottoms. I thought that would get a little bit better chuckle than it got. I mean, isn't that wonderful that Jesus cares about every single one of our needs, even the comforts of our rear ends, so he gave comfortable green grass in order to do this miracle. Now, secondly, again, this is the only miracle of Jesus that is in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I find that fascinating because if you want to know the complete story about what happened, you need to get each eyewitness account and put them together. Uh, We do that with an accident, for example. A police officer tries to get four witnesses, for example, to give their opinion on what happened, and then they put together the story from the different perspectives of the four witnesses. Well, if you look at particularly Matthew and Mark's gospel, you will see the next step after Jesus had them sit down on the comfortable grass is he divided them into 50s and 100s. He put them into organized groups in order for them to be fed. Now, now why is this important? It's because you need to know that God is a God of order. He likes things done decently and in order. Jesus sat people down in 50s and 100s to then distribute the food to them. You're listening to Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. Coming up, David joins me in the studio in an insightful conversation about this morning's Davidism. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Tony Marciano, President and CEO of Charlotte Rescue Mission. Let me ask you a question. What do you do when you stand at the intersection of homelessness and addiction? Let me put you in that person's shoes for just a second. What is it that you really need? You've probably been one of the individuals who stood at the end of the interstate ramp, holding a sign that said, hungry, will work for food. But you never used the money for food. You bought booze and drugs with it. And most likely, you hate your life. Your addiction has stolen every aspect of hope. You want to be part of the fabric of society, but every morning your addiction screams and you surrender to it. There is one thing you do need, and that is transformation. The place to go is Charlotte Rescue Mission. Charlotte Rescue Mission works from the inside out to address the root cause of someone at the crossroads of addiction and homelessness. The Rescue Mission provides free, Christian, residential, high-quality substance abuse recovery programs to members of our community who otherwise would not be able to afford such services. 
With a passion for holistic transformation and a love for Christ, the mission's 120-day program has transformed the lives of thousands of men and women in our community. Charlotte Rescue Mission is grateful for the financial partnership of Moments of Hope Church. Thanks for listening to Moments of Hope. I'm Jen Houston, and with me is our pastor, David Chadwick. David, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Jen, and I hope you're doing well. I am doing well, thank you. In this morning's e-devotion, you gave us a really good perspective on the value of a Christ-centered marriage. Will you share some of those thoughts with our listeners? Well, I will, because people need to realize that in original intent, before the fall ever occurred in Genesis 3, God gives his design for marriage marriage in Genesis 2:24. The last couple of verses before the fall occurs in Genesis 3:1. And here's what God says, a man shall leave his mother and father and cleave unto his wife and the two shall become one flesh and they'll be naked and unashamed. Well, it's very clear that God's original intent for marriage was one man one woman in a committed covenantal eternal relationship with one another. Heterosexual, monogamous, committed covenantal, and when that operates the way it's supposed to operate, there will be no nakedness or no shame in that marriage. Jesus in Matthew 19, in a debate with the religious leaders about divorce, actually quotes that verse and says divorce was never a part of God's original intent. Now, for listeners out there who've been through a divorce, God is gracious and can restore you. I don't want to heap guilt on you, but divorce was never a part of God's original intent. He wanted a man and a woman to be committed to marriage forever. Now, this is the message I want to give people today. My dad was married to my mom for 63 years. Wow. Mom lived the last years of her life in a state of dementia. Dad cared for her every day until the day she died. Even in those last several years when she didn't know it was dad in the room, when her mind was vacuous, dad would still be there for her, loved her until the day that she died because he'd made a committed covenantal relationship with her. Well, during those years, dad was a pastor. And he was counseling a man who was a philanderer, who was cheating on his wife, sleeping with all kinds of women. And my dad confronted him with the truths of Genesis 2.24. And the man looked at my dad and said, are you trying to tell me that you've only slept with one woman all of your life? And my dad said, yep. That's what I'm trying to tell you. That's God's original intent. And the man responded, wow, what a hell of a lot you've missed. <laughs> and my dad chuckled and said, sir, what a heaven of a lot you've missed. Wow. And I just want to tell everyone out there, don't despise God's ordinances, his design. They're good for you. They're the best for you. And when you have a marriage where a man and a woman are committed to one another, who learn how to forgive one another mm -hmm. of all of their mistakes, who operate in grace and can live in a state of not being ashamed in any way whatsoever. You're going to raise children in an environment where grace is in place that will allow them to breathe the pure, clean, healthy air of God's grace every day, and they most likely will turn out well. So don't fall prey to the culture's lies that believe you can sleep with anybody and everybody, and there'll be no effect upon your life. That's a hellish existence. Do it God's way. What a heaven of a lot you'll experience when you realize the beauty of that monogamous, heterosexual, 
committed, covenantal relationship that God intended for all marriages today and forever. Wow, this is so beautiful. It just brings tears to my eyes just thinking of the depth of this kind of love that God allows us to experience. It's a foretaste of what heaven's going to be like because there's no marriage in heaven. I have a feeling, though, that what we know with our spouses is going to be what we know with the Lord and every other person in heaven, how glorious that will be. Amazing. Thank you so much, David, for your thoughts today. You're welcome, Jen. And for everyone who'd like to receive these daily written e-blasts, as we call them, go to momentsofhopechurch.org. You can subscribe there free of charge in your inbox every morning at 7 a.m. from my heart to yours to help you give yourself a moment of hope. This has been Moments of Hope with David Chadwick, Senior Pastor of Moments of Hope Church. We would love to have you join us for worship this Sunday morning. We meet at Providence Day School, located at 5800 Sardis Road in South Charlotte at 10 a.m. You can find more information on our website, momentsofhopechurch.org. Again, come join us Sunday morning at 10 a.m. at Providence Day School, located at 5800 Sardis Road in South Charlotte. Our web address is momentsofhopechurch.org. For David and the entire Moments of Hope Church staff, this is Jen Houston asking you to pray for godly leadership in our city 